Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Can you clarify for me, what does it mean when we use the phrase common law wife or or common law husband? What is that? Well, it's a term um, that's come into being because people assume that if you just live together, that you gain some kind of rights against your cohabitee. So if you're sharing a house, um, but it happens to be in one person's name, the other person's living there in a relationship, that um, if they live together for a period of time then some kind of rights emerge and you'll hear people say oh I'm a common law wife or I'm a common law husband and there's Mm -hmm. there's this idea that the length of a relationship will enable you to claim property or claim income um, exactly the same as one might if one were married now unfortunately nothing could be further from the truth people have been campaigning for as long as I've been practicing to change the law mm-hmm. in relation to cohabitees and to try to bring them in line with married couples and it hasn't happened and it's not likely to happen so let's say you have I'm going to generalize but normally it's that it tends to be the wife or the female partner I should say who doesn't own the property but perhaps has used her income throughout the relationship to pay for food and utilities or holidays Mm -hmm. Um, she may have had two or three or more children and brought them up um, but the house has remained in the male partner's name Mm -hmm. now if that relationship breaks down that female partner has or the, the partner whose name is not on the deeds of the house has no claim at all against that property because they have no legal or beneficial entitlement. It's solely in the name of the other person. Mm -hmm. Further on from that, of course, they have no right to any kind of pension share because they're not married. And also they have no right to any form of income provision. So for themselves, because they're not actually married. So even if they have children, that's the case. They have no rights 
yeah, for themselves, no rights at all. Okay. So far as the children are concerned, they are looking at the child maintenance service for financial support for the children, mm-hmm. um, up to um, the paying parent having an income of 156,000 a year gross or less then the child maintenance service has jurisdiction. If it's above that, you can apply to the CMS for a certificate and then move to a top-up order within the court. The only other um, financial remedy available is quite infrequently used, but under Schedule 1 of the Children Act, it's possible to make an application for a loan for um, housing or some other need that the children might have. Um, And that's repayable to the parent who provides it when the child has reached the age of 18. So if you're not married, even if you have children, you don't have rights on the house for yourself. But you could, in theory, if you've got dependent children, get some money as a loan from the other party. Yeah. So provided the other party has sufficient means for this to be achievable, it's very much if you've got the wealthy, generally, father um, who can afford to provide accommodation by way of a loan um, for the benefit of the child pending them entering adulthood then schedule one is the application to make and it can also include capital sums for essential expenditure so if you needed so you needed a, a cot or a bed or other furniture or requirements for the child if you just had no money at all to furnish your home then that could be facilitated as well and would that be a loan or would that be something that was actually given? No, that could be it. That could be an outright payment. Right. But it is it is quite underused legislation. People don't always think about it. And it is something to think about in smaller money cases as well, because you know, sometimes it can be the difference between some kind of secure accommodation or being dependent on rented accommodation or local authority accommodation which isn't immediately accessible Mm. I mean that's very interesting because of course a narcissist could exploit this you know I've heard many cases of people getting into relationships with narcissists particularly affluent ones and quite often they don't marry them because the narcissist might already be divorced. Um, and so that, you know, they, they just say, well, I don't want to ever get married again because of what happened to me last time. So the new partner sort of falls for that, may or may not have children with the narcissist. But actually then if the relationship does split up five, 10 years down the line, presumably they end up with nothing for themselves anyway, um, unless they have children and there might be something for the children. So that's quite important, I think, to look out for. Mm. And and I think very important to think about um, if you've been married and you're thinking, you know, as the person who's been the victim of narcissistic abuse, that you're thinking, God, I'm never going to get myself involved in that again. Um, I'm only ever going to live with somebody moving forwards. But, you know, think very, very carefully about the basis on which you do that. It's quite common. Um, it certainly was common in the 80s and 90s. And I, I'm, I'm not sure it's changed that much for one partner to be responsible for the mortgage and the other to pay the bills and the sort of frivolous stuff like holidays and cars and that kind of thing and it's it's quite a common demarcation Mm -hmm. and of course the person who's paying the mortgage and who owns the property has got all of the property rights uh, whereas the other person who may have a broadly similar income is meeting all the stuff that they get no recognition for and it tends to be the women because obviously they're going to have the children if Mm -hmm. there are any and therefore you 
are more likely to find that because their income is perhaps uncertain, mm-hmm. the way it's sold is, oh, well, you know, it's much better that we use your income for the luxury items. Whereas use mine, which is going to be guaranteed for the absolute solid stuff that we need, i.e. the mortgage. But if the if the house is put into joint names, that's a different thing again, isn't it? Totally so. And there's another thing to guard against with that, because if you are cohabitees and you're buying a property and you're going to put it in joint names, and I'll just pause for a moment to explain the difference between owning as joint tenants or tenants in common. Um, because they're very, very important differences. If you own as joint tenants, it means that you both own the whole property. So that if one of you dies, um, the other retains the whole property. Right. If you own as tenants in common, it means that you each own a specific percentage of the property. If there's nothing to say what percentage that might be, then it's deemed to be equal 50-50. But you could own in unequal shares and those unequal shares would be set out on the face of the deeds of the property. The big, big difference is that as tenants in common, you can leave your share under the terms of your will. So it doesn't pass automatically on survivorship to the other owner. Right. When people buy a property and they're not married, they don't tend to think about why they should own as tenants in common and not joint tenants because they're happy they're starting a new relationship people tend to feel that if they start being a bit picky about who owns what it looks as though they're not committed and they're not making all the right overtures and and showing that they're in a caring full-time long-term meaningful relationship right a particular area of misconception is that let's say one of the couple has acquired some money perhaps they owned a property before and they're going to invest all of the equity from that into this new joint venture Mm -hmm. and so they put most of the deposit down and the other person puts nothing but they're going to pay the mortgage jointly because it's owned as as joint tenants that money that one of them put in now immediately belongs to both yeah so it's split in half or immediately given half their deposit to their cohabitee Exactly. And the trouble is, nobody likes to spend money on lawyers, particularly. And when you're buying a house, actually, your conveyancing fees are not the most exciting thing that you're paying for. Um, You're much more keen on buying furniture and so on. So people tend to look for the cheapest solicitors that will do what they see as a very, very mundane job. Um, And actually, it isn't. It's a really important job. This was a a big area of negligence claims for conveyancers, um, where they weren't properly advising people about how important it was to consider the difference between joint tenants and tenants in common. So now most of the cheaper firms just have a pro forma sheet, which will set out the definition of both and ask you to choose. But of course, we all know that most people don't read that sort of paperwork properly. Um, They're so keen to get on with the exciting stuff that they'll think, oh, yes, box tick. Yes, we're doing this jointly. So of course, we want to be joint tenants. Right. Job done. That's fine if you live together happily ever after. Mm -hmm. But if you've made Mm. unequal contributions to that property, what you've done is gifted half of that unequal contribution to the other person. Mm. And that's fine as long as the relationship stands the test of time. But as soon as it goes wrong, it's not quite so fine. See, Mm. I think this is so important because so often in people who've had narcissistic relationships, they so often go on Mm. to have another narcissistic relationship. Mm. Um, Mm. And and they've been bitten, so they don't want to get married. 
and so I can see how easy it would be for them to to fall into the trap of of putting a, a deposit down from perhaps a, a settlement that they've secured from their own divorce right. and mm-hmm. moving in with with the new person, mm-hmm. ticking the box which says uh, joint tenants, and right. just not realizing that they've basically given away half of of everything that they've put into the house immediately, mm-hmm. and that if their new partner actually mm-hmm. is a narcissist, mm-hmm. and as we've said, that is mm-hmm. actually horribly common they're not going to sort of be fair or rational about it they're just going to just say well that's that's mine now tough luck Mm -hmm. so um Mm -hmm. so yeah it's so important well and and it will be tough luck because unless you have someone with a moral compass who thinks oh dear no that's not very fair I shouldn't have done that which is highly unlikely especially in a in a relationship breakdown situation yeah even with a normal relationship um breakdown where a narcissist isn't involved yeah yeah there's going to be some bitterness um well, especially if there's a third party involved, mm-hmm. nobody's going to say, oh, dear, yes, I recognize that that came from your previous property. And of course, I should give that back. Because if you're not obliged to, why would you? Mm. And of course, a narcissist will definitely go down that route. So if someone's come out of a narcissistic relationship, then they've met someone new and they want to cohabit, but they, they don't want to get married. And they've got money from their previous settlement and they're putting that into the house. And perhaps their, their new partner isn't putting as much in or uh, as a deposit. Perhaps the agreement is that they put the bulk of the deposit down and the partner pays the mortgage. Are you saying that they should be tenants in common then rather than yes. joint tenants? I am. I'm saying that they should be tenants in common. They should think about whether that should be in unequal shares and have a proper declaration of trust setting out who owns what. And I also think they should have a cohabitation agreement. Right. OK. So I don't know anything about this. So OK. Now, people think it's not necessary because you don't have any rights. I've already spent some time saying that mm. you don't gain any rights as a cohabitee. If you've got no property, mm-hmm. you'd leave with your suitcase if the relationship broke down. But in a cohabitation agreement, you can deal with those points um, that actually you might want to think about. And so things like if the relationship breaks down, how long does the person who perhaps doesn't own the property have to leave the property? 28 days notice or how long might it might it be? If you own as tenants in common Mm. and so you have the ability to leave your interest in the property under the terms of your will, you might not have made a will in favour of your partner. You might have made a will in favour of your children, let's say, if this is a second relationship. Mm-hmm. And so in your cohabitation agreement, you can stipulate how long your partner might be able to live in the property after your death mm-hmm. um, before the property would need to be sold. Or you might be able to provide that actually they could buy your beneficiaries out if that's what they chose to do. So you can put a lot of regulation about how you're going to manage your living arrangements in a cohabitation agreement to just take away those those really difficult areas Mm. where a problem might arise. And I think very particularly um, if one of you dies, Mm -hmm. and I think this is really a point for people who are on a second relationship, who've got children from a previous relationship and therefore are much more likely to leave their interest in the property to those children. You might want to provide within your cohabitation agreement that you would give a life interest to your cohabitee so that they could stay in the property during their lifetime um, and only then would it pass to your beneficiaries and that could be mirrored within your Mm. will Um, but you might not want to do that because um, you're really covering untimely death and therefore you might be cutting your children out of their inheritance for you know 30 plus years 
And so what you might actually want to say is think about what the, the, the reasonable grieving period is and stipulate that that your cohabitee could stay in the property, let's say for 12 months, just while they sort themselves out. It's their home as well. It generally takes at least 12 months for executors to deal with the winding up of estates. So that would sit quite comfortably alongside that. You know, rather than having the invidious position of, God forbid, somebody were to die, leaving their, their share of the property to, to someone other than the cohabitee. And literally, you know, the day after the funeral, they're mm. banging on the door with the estate agent mm. behind them saying, right, this is going on the market now, mm. because that would mm. be very unattractive. I mean, these are all such important points for, for people who, who have left a relationship and who are in a new relationship, because I don't think people consider it really. Mm. They find their new relationship and they're sort of madly in love and none of these things are a consideration. That's right. Very, very occasionally, we will have clients who are looking at a new relationship, having got out of an old one. And, and it, it tends to be later on in life. And they've, they've met someone, they've been a bit reticent about whether they do want to embark on a relationship. But they've decided that they will and they want to live together, but they don't want anything beyond that. And very occasionally, they will come and have an appointment to find out exactly where they stand. So to understand who's going to own what, who should pay for what, should they have a cohabitation agreement? Would they have a prenuptial agreement if they married? I would say yes, definitely they should. Um, But also um, from the point of view of managing the relationship, if one is much more wealthy than the other, and very often can be the woman who's much more wealthy than the man, and she might feel that she doesn't want to be in a position where it feels as though she's paying for the holidays or she's financing everything because that can make some people feel slightly uncomfortable. And so to talk through perhaps how to ensure that that doesn't happen, to discuss having a mechanism for, um, you know, if we go on holiday, we pay in this percentage. And if it's set out in an agreement, then nobody needs to feel that they're paying for someone else or that it's wrong or hasn't been properly thought through because actually they've thought it through very carefully and they've provided themselves with a roadmap as to how these things should be done. So I think that can work extremely well. Going back to the, the tenants in common, what if somebody's put all the deposit in for a house, um, but they can't pay the mortgage? So the other um, half of the, the relationship, they pay the um, the mortgage. What happens then in terms of percentages and who owns the house? So what you might do is have a sliding scale of percentage. So you might start with the person who's putting all the deposit in as having 99% and the other 1%. Um, and then you might look at the, if it's going to be a repayment mortgage, the extent to which the mortgage is being repaid so that the equity in the property is increasing by that repayment. Um, and then have a sliding scale to, to show that over a period of time, incrementally, the mortgage payer would be gaining a higher interest in the property. So that the the balance changes as the years go on, if one person is paying the mortgage. Mm. Right, I exactly. see. When you start paying a mortgage, you're mainly paying interest. Mm. So it's actually going to take the mortgage payer a long time to be in the same capital position as the person who put the equity in. Right. As the equity in the property goes up as a consequence of the mortgage being paid, and also you've at the same time got to take account of just increasing property prices. But as the value is going up, as the mortgage comes down, 
then the mortgage payer's interest in the property would increase incrementally. So it would increase slowly to start with because they're paying off mostly interest. And then as the years go on, they're paying off capital. So their their interest in the property exactly. would, would therefore increase. It would. It's slightly complicated, but it's it's certainly not that difficult to do. And it's certainly better than having nothing or, God forbid, buying as joint tenants. So, so in summary, your advice would be, so if someone's come out of a narcissistic relationship, they've met someone new and they want to sort of move in with them or they want to get a, a house together, but they don't want to get married. What would your sort of key messages be to them? Find out where you stand, what your rights are and what you're letting yourself in for. So I think having a meeting with I would say family lawyer, just to look at what your options are and what the pitfalls are um, is really, really beneficial. There's no such thing as a common law wife. Um, You have no rights um, as this mythical individual or husband works the same way um, or partner. I think you would want to think very carefully about what you're putting into the property financially and how you're going to own it. Don't own as joint tenants if there is anything unequal about your contributions, Um, particularly if you're the one making the larger contribution, because if if you're the one not putting anything in, perhaps it doesn't matter so much. Do think about having a cohabitation agreement because there's no harm in regulating this relationship. A written agreement, just setting out what it is that you're both going to be doing and what's going to happen if this relationship breaks down. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.